Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to see you. We're going to continue on today, except we're going to take a little bit of a detour from Proverbs. Not not totally, because I'm going to be quoting some some verses from Proverbs. But um, I guess I could come up with a reason, and actually have it in here uh, how this is not an unrelated detour. But I guess in the spirit of full disclosure, we were, I was out of town all week on vacation, and we got back really late, and so I needed to kind of draw from stuff that I had prepared uh, a while ago. Um, so this is really just sort of like, uh, I don't know if it's laziness or lack of discipline on my part to have this prepared you know, weeks in advance, but, but actually we talked last week, um, we finished up chapter 3 in, in Proverbs, the last section, verses 27 to 35, which we focused on this practice of wisdom among neighbors. We talked about um, you know, the, the principles that are elucidated there at the end of chapter 3 of Proverbs and how wisdom can be manifested amongst those whom we might refer to or call neighbors. And so today I want to kind of spring off of that and talk about something a little more uh, substantive in terms of our, our relationships, and that's friendship or genuine friendship, the principles of true friendship. Um, and just kind of spring off this this discussion we had last week on on applying wisdom amongst our neighbors. The fact of the matter is, and you all would agree with this, I know, and we experience this. I mean, this is not a profound statement or something particularly insightful, but it's just worthy of making the statement at the beginning of our time to say that that friendship is foundational to our lives, right? I mean, it's something that's profound and foundational to our our life. It's it's really innate. Our desire for friendship, our desire for fellowship is innate. We were created in God's image, and so we were created to have fellowship um, in the same way that God is a trinity and has perfect fellowship and communion within the trinity. We were created in God's image, and we were created for fellowship, for relationship, and you might say for friendship, for companionship, and for human intimacy and relationship. It's not just a principle that we want to highlight from Scripture and say, you know, we need to be good friends, or we need to know what it means to be a good friend, but the fact of the matter is is that it's really a human principle. It's what it means, it's part of what it means to be human, is is to desire or even, even crave relationship or friendship. And so, when you think about it in the context, however, of the church or the body of Christ, us, uh, us as individual Christians, understanding what it means to be a friend, understanding principles of Christian friendship become all the more paramount when you consider life in the body of Christ. I mean, you're really talking about um, a, a transcendent type of friendship, transcendent type of relationship. And I've, I've, I had this, I can't remember if this was inspired by um, you know a sermon or something I heard someone say, but at one point along my sort of my journey, I guess, as, as a Christian, somehow, and I, I can't remember the stimulus of it, but this principle of Christian fellowship um, sort of penetrated my heart and mind in, in a really unique way in the sense that I, I suddenly realized that it's, 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 a, it's the most significant form of relationship. I, Ever. It's an eternal bond. Um, It extends beyond any kind of human relationship, this bond of Christian fellowship and and this bond of life in the body of Christ. It's profound. It's significant. And so the fleshing out 
of the qualities of fellowship and friendship in the body of Christ because of its significance, because of its eternal nature and quality, because of the implications of that witness to the world. Um, it, it becomes all the more incumbent upon us to, to know what it means to be a true friend, to understand friendship from a biblical perspective. It's foundational. Um, so if you pose the question or a few questions about friendship, what is friendship? Or you may be asked the question, how do I know how to identify a true friend? How do I, how do I discern friendship in, the, in the, the array of relationships that I have in my life? And of course, um, to answer these significant and profound questions, I did what every intelligent person would do. I, I searched Google to, to find the answers. So I wanted to kind of just uh, maybe prod your thinking and maybe for the sake of a little bit of levity at the beginning here, I want to give you some quotes on friendship from the internet, which is, you know, it's where ultimate truth is found on the internet, as we all know, right? But these are just little quotes about friendship that I thought were somewhat funny. Friends are people who know you really well and like you anyway. It's a nice, nice sentiment, right? Friends, this, is, this gets a little dark, so I don't mean to be too dark here early in the morning, but friends give you a shoulder to cry on, but best friends are ready with a shovel to hurt the person who made you cry. A little vengefulness there. Now you have to think about this one. The imaginary friends I had as a kid dropped me because their friends thought I didn't exist. <laughs> now here's one. This, this, is a, this is a sort of... A, if you could just imagine, uh, you know, maybe a, a middle school girl making this statement about friendship might be the right, right context. I'd walk through fire for my best friend. Well, not fire, that would be dangerous, but a super humid room, but not too humid because, you know, my hair. <laughs> Think about it. And for the students in the room, I know we have some students here. Studying means 10% reading and 90% complaining to your friends that you have to study. Somebody could probably relate to that. And for, you know, life in our technological age, I love my computer because my, all my friends live inside it. Think about that. And then for the foodies in the group, for those of you who are, who are foodies, you like to watch the Food Network and all that, friends are the bacon bits in the salad bowl of life. Now, do you feel like you've gotten all you need to know about friendship from the Internet as we have it? When you do think about friendship, and speaking of searching the Internet for insight on friendship, um, you know, when you think about friendship in the age of our connected society, our connected culture, uh, friendship in, in the age of technology, it's really taken on a much broader definition and, by consequence, a much thinner definition as the definition or the idea or concepts of friendship have stretched more broadly, they've also thinned out substantially. It's enlightening to look at um, the way friendships are cultivated and maintained by those of a, of a generation who have grown up in a technological age. Um, there are people young people, and you know them, some of you, some of them have, you have them living in your home, who do not know life without Wi-Fi or smartphones or social media apps. Like, they, they don't know life without it. 
And so it's interesting to, to look at how friendship is viewed, maintained, cultivated amongst that generation of people. The Pew Research Group, they have been conducting a study for over a decade. It's basically a, a general study, and it, it, it breaks out into a whole lot of different uh, categories and areas of, of specific focus. But it's just this study on um, technology and, and teenagers, basically, is the, is the general um, study. Digital lives of teenagers is the way that they frame it up. And in, a, in the most recent iteration of this study, uh, or at least in 2015, I'm not sure, I didn't see a 2016 or 17, I believe this was 2015, uh, a, a recent iteration of this sort of broad and sweeping and ongoing study of the digital lives of teenagers, uh, th- this one writer from Pew Research uh, listed six key facts or takeaways from this study about teens, technology, and friendships. So I just want to cite those for you, just to kind of give you a a framework for this this friendship concept and how it's being cultivated or thought about amongst younger generations in a a connected age, right? The first takeaway is this. More than half of teens have made at least one new friend online. Fully 57% of teenagers have met a new friend over the Internet with nearly 3 in 10 teens, or 29%, saying they have made more than 5 friends this way. But most of these relationships remain online, with a majority, 77%, of all teenagers saying they have never met an online friend in person. Second takeaway. Social media sites are popular places for teens to make friends online. Not a surprise there. About two-thirds, or 64% of teens who have met a friend online say they have met new friends via a social networking site. Additionally, a majority of teens say social media platforms have made them feel more connected to their friends' lives and feelings. Roughly 8 in 10 social media using teens, or 83%, say that sites like Facebook or Instagram make them feel more connected to what is happening in their friends' lives while 70% say these social platforms make them feel more in tune with their friends' feelings. Third takeaway, for some teens, there are downsides to social media. No surprise there. Fully 68% of social media-using teens say they have experienced drama among friends on the platform. More than half, or 53%, of teen social media users have seen postings on social media about something to which they were not invited. While some teens feel pressure to post only content that makes them look good, that's 40%, or that will be popular, 39%. Four, teens use a number of different platforms and devices to keep in touch with friends, but text messaging is used on a daily basis much more than others. Roughly 9 in 10, or 88% of teens, spend time with their friends via text messaging at least occasionally, and 55% do so every day. This is not a surprise. We see this all the time. So text messaging is the primary means of connecting or cultivating or maintaining friendships. Few teens keep in touch with friends on a daily basis by email or video chatting or phone calling. Five, roughly one in four teens have fought with a friend because of something that first happened online or because of a text message. While a majority of teens have not fought with a friend over something that initially occurred online, 26% of teens have experienced this type of digitally facilitated conflict. Teen girls, 32%, or more likely than their male counterparts, 20%, 
to say they have had this type of conflict. And then the last takeaway from this study, video games play an important role in the development and maintenance of friendships, especially for teen boys. Roughly three-quarters, or 78%, of online gaming teens say they feel more connected to existing friends with whom they play games. For boys, that share is even higher, with 84% saying network games make them feel more connected to friends when they play, compared with 62% of girls. Overall, boys are much more likely than girls to make new friends while playing games online. That's 57% versus 13%. Boys also spend more time playing video games with friends, 16% of boys play video games in person with friends every day or almost every day compared with just 5% of girls. So if you look at this study and you think about these takeaways, that kind of gives you a snapshot, you know, statistically speaking anyway, of friendship as it is experienced, as it is cultivated, as it is viewed or understood or being shaped in the hearts and minds of young generation, digital generation. And I would, I would say that it's, it's, it's not necessarily this way in every friendship case, but I would say just by virtue of the various mediums themselves, it's very difficult for those friendships to be cultivated in a deep way. Not, not impossible, but, but very difficult. And I would argue that friendship is being cultivated in very shallow ways in general, as a result of this medium of, of primary communication or cultivating friendship. And it's actually shaping the way people view friendship. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But we have people that are growing up in this kind of, of um, arena for cultivating friendship. And you think about that compared to... And by the way, let me just be quick to say... This is not some sort of, um, you know, holier-than-thou judgment against the use of social media. I mean, it's, it can be very functional and useful uh, for kingdom work and for effective communication. So just understand, I'm trying to give a sort of a cultural snapshot here, not to say that all uses of social media are of the devil. That's not the point at all. The point is, is that when you think about cultivating friendship, um, it does require a level of, of effort and a level of engagement that is really not the norm anymore. It's not the normal way of communicating. And people that do utilize various forms of technology to cultivate deeper relationship, they're really basically using electronic means for what we used to call in the old days letter writing which can be a very rich and deep way of cultivating relationship. Writing, thoughtful writing of sentences and phrases and paragraphs in, in long form, um, that's, that's oftentimes a very meaningful way of building relationships. But the norm is quick hits, right? Quick sentences. In fact, acronyms or emojis to say everything you need to say, right? I mean, that's more sort of the order of the day. And when you put that up against what it means to cultivate fellowship or friendship in the body of Christ, where we're called to utilize our gifts for the building up of the body, where we're called to exhort and encourage and pray for and bear one another's burdens. I mean, there's a level of of, um, incumbent 
um, engagement that is significant. And so I guess maybe the point is that the relationship building, the friendship building muscles, if you will, um, can possibly be atrophied. And when it comes to life in the body of Christ, you could have the similar effect as kids are growing up in this kind of communication environment. It's something to just keep mind of. One writer refers to this as a, a virtual form of fellowship is one of the dangers of relationship building in a social media world. A writer in Harvard Business Review, uh, uh, Umer Haik, I think is the way he pronounce his name, talks about uh, what he calls thin relationships. I use that term. He says this, despite all the excitement surrounding social media, the internet isn't connecting us as much as we think it is. It largely, it's largely home to weak artificial connections, what I call thin relationships. Thin relationships are the illusion of real relationships. He goes on to explain that uh, this explosion in relationships and social networking, um, like I said earlier, the term relationship or friendship has lost its value. It used to mean something, he says, that you could count on. Or excuse me, it used to mean someone you could count on. Today, it means someone you can swap bits with. Another writer on the subject, uh, Gervasi Markham, said this, Social networking encourages people to have a greater number of much shallower friendships. I know what 15 of my friends had for breakfast, he says, but I don't know whether any of them is struggling with major life issues. If this trend continues, people in 2020 will have hundreds of acquaintances but very few friends. And then Mark Vernon with USA Today says this, While social networking sites and the like have grown exponentially, the element that is crucial and harder to investigate is the quality of the connections they nurture. A connection may be only a, clicking, uh, be a click away, but cultivating a good friendship takes more. It seems common sense to conclude that friending online nurtures shallow relationships. So there's a caution here for all of us when it comes to the age that we're living in. Really just the air that we breathe when it comes to communication and interaction. We're living in a day and time where there has been a a sort of a a natural or consequent thinning out of relationships or friendships. And even the skills or the social muscles, if you will, to build deep friendships have potentially become weak. Well, it... It's not just a, an issue, clearly, of, of our modern time. Um, you can go back and read through all, throughout the pages of Scripture uh, and throughout history, read philosophy. Aristotle wrote um, somewhat prolifically on friendship. Um, Aristotle, obviously the time between Solomon and the New Testament was his sort of heyday, in the, the, the 300 B.C. era. 300s BC. And he writes this about friendship. And I want you to think about his breakdown of friendship relative to what I just read you about the takeaways of of friendship from a digital generation perspective, youth generation perspective. Friendship is known, is a known mutual goodwill between persons for one of three primary lovable qualities, utility, pleasure, or what Aristotle calls the good. 
So he breaks friendship down into three sort of categories. The first, the friendship of utility. Aristotle teaches this, quote, Friends whose affection is based on utility do not love each other in themselves, but insofar as some benefit accrues to them from each other. Consequently, in friendship of utility, men love their friend for their own good, for their own good, and not as, a, as being the person loved, but as useful or agreeable. In other words, the friend is not loved for his own sake, but for the sake of some benefit received by the other. The other. Aristotle notes that these friendships are not permanent, because if the benefit of the utility ends, so will the friendship. You can't do for me what I need you to do for me, or what you have been doing for me. That was the basis of our friendship. If that goes away, friendship goes away. That's the point of the friendship of utility. Classic examples of a friendship of utility would be business partners or classmates. The second category that he highlights is the friendship of pleasure. Similar to utility, but a little different. Aristotle observes, quote, And similarly, similarly with those whose friendship is based on pleasure, for instance, we enjoy the society of witty people, not because of what they are in themselves, but because they are agreeable to us. As with utility in the friendship, as, as with utility, in the friendship of pleasure, persons love their friend not for the sake of the friend, but for the sake of the pleasure received. So it's similar to utility. It's the, the utility of receiving pleasure, if you will. But you get the idea. It's a friendship of pleasure. Aristotle states, With the young, the motive of friendship appears to be pleasure, since the young guide their lives by emotion, and for the most part pursue what is pleasant to themselves, and the object of the moment, and the things that please them change as their age alters. Hence they both form friendships and drop them quickly, since their affections alter with what gives them pleasure, and the tastes of youth change quickly. Think about this in an online world how easy it would be to drop a friend, right? Especially if, it's, if your friendships, 70% of them are people that you've not even met in person. So basically, this idea of accountability to other people in relationship and friendship is eviscerated. And, it, and, and the door is swung wide open for friendships of utility or friendships of pleasure or a combination of the two. Because it's so easy, so easy, to drop that friendship when the utility goes away or when they're not generating the kind of pleasure that you're seeking in, a, in an online or virtual kind of world or virtual kind of fellowship. But then Aristotle goes on to describe what he calls the friendship of the good. He observes, the perfect, quote, the perfect form of friendship is that between the good and those who resemble each other in their virtue. And this kind of ties into sort of Aristotle's sort of fundamental philosophical framework. But the perfect form of friendship, he says, is that between the good and those who resemble each other in virtue. For these friends wish each alike the other's good in respect of their goodness, and they are good in themselves. But it is those who wish the good in their friends for their friends' sake who are friends in the fullest sense, since they love each other for themselves and not accidentally. Hence the friendship of these lasts as long as they continue to be good. And virtue is a permanent quality. And each is good relatively to his friend as well as absolutely, since the good are both absolutely and profitable to each other. And each is pleasant in both ways also, since good men are pleasant both absolutely and to each other. 
For everyone is pleased by his own actions, and therefore by actions that resemble his own. And the actions of all good men are the same or similar. So basically, the friendship of the good, from Aristotle's perspective, is I'm a good man. And I want what's good. Part of my virtue of being a good man is that I want what is good for you. And so our friendship is based upon a mutual shared virtue of goodness in which we both value the goodness in one another. And upon that standard of the good, we build our friendship. Now you can kind of see how Aristotle, really, he could have been speaking, he could have been teaching at a seminar today, right, on, on friendship of utility and friendship of pleasure. And clearly this friendship of the good, he's... He's reaching for something more transcendent. He's reaching for something more eternal, but of course, slightly misses the mark apart from biblical truth, apart from the truth of God. So let's talk about this from the standpoint of true friendship. Let's look at a few characteristics of true friendship from Scripture. The first characteristic I would just point our attention to in light of this introductory material is that true friendship, kind of springing off of this Aristotle's friendship of the good, true friendship requires a standard. It requires something to measure the trueness of the friendship. It requires an objective standard. It requires an objective measure for what is good and what is right and what is best. I read a number of different articles on friendship from a secular perspective, just you know, psychology to get today, articles, all kinds of different perspectives on friendship, just to get a sense of, of what people say and what people are writing, what experts would articulate about friendship. And every article that I read, including the ones from secular sources, they all refer to the, the following three things in various ways, these common characteristics of a true friend. A true friend is committed to your happiness, A true friend will never ask you to compromise your convictions. A true friend will seek to be a good influence on you and inspire you to be your best. So if if these things are in some way characteristic, and I know that there's some looseness on on some of this that you could articulate, but, but you have to have some common standard for what is happiness. If you're committed to my happiness and that makes you in part a true friend, well, how are we defining happiness? What is the standard by which we define happiness? If we define it in some worldly or fleshly kind of way, then that's just friendship of pleasure. That's not tied to any kind of transcendent, truth-based, eternal standard. You see what I'm saying? You have to have a standard. You have to have a measure against which you, against which you judge the quality of these friendships. You have to have a common objective. You have to have an authoritative standard so that you can measure these things like happiness or convictions or good influences, things that, that you would want a friend to be a good influence on you. Well, what is good? How, how do we define that as mutual friends? So when we look to Christ himself, we see the word of God as this standard. John fifteen twelve to 17 Jesus said this, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So here, Jesus is basically establishing a standard for friendship with him. 
And it is tied to adherence to His Word, to his, him, him as the standard, to the truth of God as the standard. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should, should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So Jesus himself establishes the standard. The standard for judging or determining or measuring the quality or depth or genuineness of friendship in the body of Christ is the standard of God's word. It's measured against that and that alone. And what's interesting to note when you take that as the standard, and of course, I'm not, I, again, I know that this is not some profound insight. We, we, we live life according to the standards of Scripture, right? That is our objective standard. But what's interesting to note about friendship in Scripture is that Scripture does not focus on how to identify friends or how to make friends. It focuses on how we can be friends. It focuses on us, on the qualities and the virtues and the characteristics that we cultivate in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own own actions that would help us to be good friends to others. And isn't it true how it's easy for us, and it's certainly clear in the, in the realm of the world in general, how friendship is often reversed, right? The focus, especially as we grow up, the focus is, how do I make friends? How do I get friends? How do I get people to like me and want to be my friend? As opposed to, how do I just become the kind of person that demonstrates friendship to others? And that's the focus of Scripture. That's the focus of the standard of friendship, The Bible itself gives us character qualities, virtues that help us to be a good friend, not find friends, not know how to make friends, not know how to manipulate people and have them like you for some quality that's really more self-serving than serving them. So true, true friendship requires a standard. Second, true friendship is rooted in love. We saw this in this passage from Christ himself. It's rooted in love. He closes out by saying that, that I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father in my, the Father in my name, may he give it to you, these things I commanded you, so that you will love one another. True friendship is rooted in love, in genuine love. Even, even the origin of the term to love from Old English or pre-Germanic origin is, is a brotherly love and affection. It's a similar origin as, as phylos, the Greek term for love. It's a love that's, that's familial. It's, it's, it has a genuine affection, a bonded affection. True friendship is rooted in that kind of love. Proverbs 17.17 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That's what a friend does. A friend loves. And even sacrificially, a friend is born for adversity. And when you look at the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is often used in weddings, and it's often used in the the, uh, sort of elucidating of of marital love or, or sort of the love between a husband and wife, um, 
But this is, this is a, a letter to the body of Christ about what love really looks like. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, if that doesn't characterize what true friendship should look like, I don't know what does. I know that I would be blessed to have friends that were patient and kind with me. Lord knows I need patience and kindness from my friends. Nothing can damage true friendship than arrogance between friends, boasting between friends, or just being rude or insisting on your own way. Have you ever had a, I would call him a, an associate, a companion, someone you spend time with, and either you're provoked by them or they are constantly assist, insisting on their own way. Tell me how deep that friendship can grow. But no. Friendship is rooted in love, and love has these qualities about it that when you read them, especially this list, this beautiful list in 1 Corinthians 13, you can clearly see how that would constitute a genuine depth of friendship and fellowship, profound depth of friendship and fellowship, if we were to manifest that in our relationships with others. So true friendship is rooted in love. Thirdly, true friendship is rooted in truth. It's kind of a redundant statement. I like to say it's a redundant statement straight from the Department of Redundancy. True friendship is rooted in truth, even when the truth might hurt or sting. Sometimes telling the truth to a friend is hard. Sometimes having the truth told to you by a friend is hard. But true friendship does not fail to do that. True friendship, genuine friends, do not fail to confront one another and to hold one another accountable to that standard that we talked about in the first characteristic. Not their own standards, not our own measures, but to the standard of God's Word. And so, because true friendship is rooted in truth, it it compels truth-telling in the relationship. And... It compels truth-receiving in the relationship. Proverbs 27, 5-6 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Again, wisdom from Proverbs on friendship. Oscar Wilde said it this way, A true friend stabs you in the front. Right? Because friendship is rooted in truth, sometimes hearing the truth can be painful. Or another way to to view this rooted in truth principle, Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. There's There's a harshness, there's an abrasiveness to that that comes into play to create that sharpness. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, I do not wish to treat friendships daintily, but with the roughest courage, 
When they are real, they are not glass threads or frost work, but the solidest thing we know. So a true friend is a friend who roots that relationship in truth, even when speaking truth is painful or hard, either in the giving or in the receiving. Finally, true friendship is rooted in virtue. True friendship is rooted in virtue. In other words, it's rooted in the very nature and character of God. It can't be rooted in anything that God would despise or reject. Makes sense, right? I mean, pretty simple math there. It's rooted in virtue. In fact, when we look at Proverbs chapter 4, which we're going to look at next week, verses 14 to 19 speak about this path of the wicked. It says, Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So the counsel there that the father is giving to the son is, Don't be friends with the wicked. That's not friendship. Because true friendship is rooted in virtue. It's rooted in righteousness. It's rooted in godliness. And he he elucidates all the, the pitfalls or the problems of building friendships with people who are prone to wickedness. They cannot sleep until they have done wrong. That's an interesting and pretty vivid picture, right? Like, there's such a relentless commitment to undermining virtue. They cannot sleep until they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. And so there's this caution against friendship with those who do not possess virtue. James 4.4 makes it even more explicit. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this gets at the point that we, we tried to elucidate a little bit last week. And what, what is the intersection between friendships, true friendships that are forged in virtue and, and avoiding friendship with the world because we know that that puts us at enmity with God, we know that friendship with the world or friendship with people who are wicked by nature has all kinds of snares, will cause us to stumble, will lead us away from God. What is the intersection between friendship and gospel witness? There is a danger here that we have to constantly remind ourselves of. That at the same time we are not we are we are cautioned against having friendships that are based in something other than virtue. We are also called to gospel witness amongst the ungodly, amongst the worldly. We are called to, to a level of engagement, interpersonal engagement, even with those whose lifestyle, whose predilections, 
if we were to imbibe them ourselves, would be detrimental, would be harmful, would be deadly even. So the caution here for us is to recognize, on one hand, we are not called or commissioned to forge deep bonds and friendships with those who are ungodly, who are resistors of the truth, those who are, whose lives are not characterized by a genuine direction or trajectory of virtue. But at the same time, as believers, we're also called to engage the world with the gospel. How do you walk that balance between genuine friendship and faithfulness to the word of God in gospel witness? Well, therein lies the challenge for us day by day, right? We are called to engage the world in genuine concern and love and care for their souls. But it is to be a a relationship based upon gospel witness and the testimony of our lives to shine the light of the gospel so that they can see the work of the Lord in us and hopefully by God's grace be drawn to the truth. It kind of puts a dent a little bit though in things like for the younger age, or even, even single adults, this concept of missionary dating. You ever heard of that concept, where you're dating an unbeliever to try to win them to Christ? Or ministry models that are more oriented toward making our outside appearance look more like the world so that we can be attractive and so that the world can feel comfortable in our midst, more comfortable in our midst. It's kind of puts a little bit of a challenge to those kinds of mindsets when you think about what true friendship and relationship is built on. And yet we're called to be winsome in the community. And we're called to be faithful and peaceable. And yet forge friendships that are based upon these things. Virtue being a big part of that. That's all I have. Any final thoughts or comments on Friendship? David and Jonathan's friendship is worthy of study. Very much so. I actually read an article this morning that encouraged that study. It's a great, a great biblical example. Yeah, interesting friends, huh? I think you were, you were going to say something?
about what you're talking to them about. Right. And you can't convey that over social media or email or text. Yeah. There's an inherent coldness to it. I mean, it, it's, it's a, a sterility. I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean, it's not, it's just, it is what it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's the limitations are there. So, yeah. Another, um, another interesting point that I, I failed to put in my notes here, but some of the effects on, on, um, again, just thinking about the, the digital age that we live in and, and just the nature of it, some, some of the characteristics of it. And how, how that relates to building friendship and sustaining friendship and relationship. Think about how easily distracted we are by intrusions into times of relationship building by a text message or a social media notification. Um, people are generally more interested in making sure that the, this current experience, they could, they, could, they could be engaged in a face-to-face physical relationship or conversation with someone, and it could be at some special place or some neat meal or whatever, and they're more consumed with making sure that some picture of that moment is captured and posted on Snapchat than they are about the actual conversation that they're having with the other person. I've been in situations where I'm actually live and in person having a conversation with someone, and they're kind of having a conversation with me, but they're also having a conversation with at least three other people on text simultaneously. And I'm sorry, but studies show that our brains cannot do that. There is a biological hindrance to that. And so forget the, forget the, the lack of courtesy and kindness and the, you know, the lack of sort of relational virtue that you're demonstrating or that we demonstrate when we do that. But that you're physio- I mean, it's, it's not happening. There's only you're spreading the level of engagement and the depth of engagement, you're spreading it out necessarily. So, well, I think it becomes more about like the little high you get when someone sends you a text or comments yeah. on your post. Or, you know, it's like all, I think we, we get to where we're just seeking that affirmation by someone commenting or liking or texting. And, and so it keeps the relationships at that pleasure seeking level so that we like the concept of the wounds of a friend can be trusted is we can't even process that yeah. because the wounds of a friend are not pleasurable. No. Yeah, we 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 we're becoming soft in our ability to receive criticism and so accountability. So we just drop that mm-hmm. one and go to someone who's going to make us feel good. Mm-hmm. I question the discernment of these kids. They meet somebody online. Oh yeah. Well there is that whole thing, right? That whole sort of like it's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a brave new world, you might say, that we're living in. Uh, millennials are really kind of challenged by uh, job interview situations, one-on-one. Mm-hmm. They're just not used to... Stringing multiple sentences together with audible tones? Yeah. Lots of challenges. Lots of opportunities, though. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that... Um, when, when we as Christians understand what it means to forge genuine, biblical, truth-based, virtue-based relationships, and we demonstrate and manifest that kind of relationship sharing and building in the world, that is a bright light shining. When Jesus said, they will know you by your love, imagine the brightness of the light that can shine. 
just in the context of how we share in fellowship and relationship in deep and significant ways that in past days and times would have been normal and commonplace. But today, it's not as normal and commonplace. It's a great opportunity for the body of Christ to shine a bright light of the gospel. So, God help us. Let's pray.